Dear listener and fellow story lover, this week's story is another Christmas story. The girl's own annual was a popular Christmas gift, hence each volume contained many such themed stories, especially as a welcome diversion from the horrors and suffering of World War I. I hope you enjoy this week's Stories from Before. The Intrusion of Polly Who Transformed Christmas for Several People Written by Mary Richardson Read by Selina Cadell By permission of the Lutterworth Press Music by Stacey Weir Susan Pinar sniffed, looking from behind her curtains, at the commotion next door. Pretty time a year to move, it seems to me. They're a shiftless lot, I'll be bound. Susan Pinar measured everybody by her own standards, and Susan would never have moved in December. I don't hold with these newfangled ways of picking up and flitting any time a year, she told Peter, her big black cat. First a maze moving day, always was in my time. For herself, Susan refused to move at all. Though the neighbourhood around her had run down sadly, she would not leave her old home. The neatly kept cottage with its green lawn and bright flower beds was a veritable oasis in the desert of down-at-heel houses and untidy gardens of Willow Street. The very dinginess about her spurred Susan to scornful, almost frenzied, efforts at superhuman cleanness, and she scrubbed and swept, hoed and weeded, with an energy calculated to put to shame her frankly easy-going neighbours. "'I'll show them how to work,' she would declare to Peter. "'It beats me how that Smith woman can hang over her garden fence, what there is left of it, talking everlastingly with the people next door, and never take a weed from the path from one week's end to the next.' And Peter, her only confidant, would arch his back and blink his approval. Peter was her one friend nowadays. Years ago, the milk of human kindness in her veins had been soured by a deep disappointment, and she'd grown more sharp and bitter as time passed. Having been wronged by one member of the human family, she would have nothing to do with all the others. She had no visitors and went nowhere except shopping. Indeed, her life was so bare and meagre that she watched the movements of her humbler neighbours with covert eagerness, denying to herself the while that she took the slightest interest in them. I'm curious, that's one thing, she would declare. I hope I know enough to mind my own business. She said it now aloud, as she stood behind her curtains watching the new family move in. It doesn't matter to me what they do, so long as they let me alone. I don't suppose they'll keep the place any cleaner than the last lot. "'Tisn't much in the way of furniture, and not half-packed such as it is. "'That's the man himself, I suppose. "'He looks as useless as a wisp of straw. "'Left the last house without paying the rent, like enough. "'I wonder where the woman is.' "'The woman arrived presently, carrying a baby "'and followed by a small regiment of children of assorted sizes. "'Susan threw up her hands in horror. "'Good gracious!' she exclaimed in dismay. "'Look at the children! Just what I might have expected!' A fool for luck and a poor man for babies. And he's poor enough looking, goodness knows. I expect I shall be overrun with those young ones. I'll be bound they shan't drive me out of my home anyhow. If one of them sets foot in my garden, well, he'll wish he hadn't, that's all. Susan's thin lips tightened and her eyes snapped. Then suddenly she gasped in surprise. Well, I never, she ejaculated, if she isn't coming in at my gate. Sure enough, 
The gate was creaking an inhospitable remonstrance at the entrance of a little girl, ten years old perhaps, with a baby in her arms. Did you ever? cried Susan in excited indignation. She isn't letting any grass grow under her feet, and she'll find I won't be imposed upon. I'll send her off in short order. And she hurried resolutely downstairs and threw open the front door. On her very doorstep, the enemy confronted her. A little girl with a baby several sizes too large for her. As Susan opened the door, she raised her bright little face and fixed on Susan a pair of very beautiful soft brown eyes, smiling with an unspoiled confidence in the goodness of her kind. At Susan's forbidding gaze, the smile faltered a little, but was not to be conquered, and she asked with friendly directness before Susan could speak her mind. Can I, please, lay the baby down somewhere in your house? There isn't anything in our house to put him on, and if I didn't have to hold him, I could help so much. Her voice trembled a little at the uncompromising expression on Susan's face, and her eyes gazed into Susan's in troubled questioning. But it was unbelievable that a lady who lived in such a pretty house as this, that any neighbour, in fact, should refuse a request of this sort at such a time. There must be something she didn't understand. The child hastened to explain. He's a perfectly good baby, she said bravely, though evidently with an effort, and he'll sleep quite a little yet. He's too little to roll, so you wouldn't need to bother about him at all. Susan opened her mouth to utter a sharp refusal and shut it again. Whether it was the first look of trust in the little upraised face, or the troubled surprise which crept into the brown eyes at her continued frown, something affected Susan in the most curious way. Not for years had the opinion of another human being influenced her. But this child so clearly expected kindness that Susan was powerless to fail her. Utterly surprised at her own weakness, she opened the door a little wider. Why, I suppose you can, she heard herself saying. Come in. Reassured, the child drew a breath of relief. She had not been mistaken in her estimate of the world after all. She followed Susan upstairs, wondering a little at her silence, but sure of her goodness. You can lay it here. Susan's permission came grudgingly, but she indicated her own bed, whose fresh spread she herself had recently washed and ironed. Oh, thank you, cried the child gratefully, depositing the bundled baby tenderly on the bed. He'll be so comfortable on this lovely bed. I must go back now and help. If he should cry, call me, and I'll come in a minute. You're sure you don't mind? He'll be all right. Susan said ungraciously. Oh, of course he will, here, cried the child, and with a last little pat at the baby, she was gone. Susan stood uncertainly by the bed, in a conflict of emotions, angry at herself for her own weakness. She was yet unable to overcome the spell cast upon her by those brown eyes. She glanced at the little bundle on her clean quilt. What had she done? Was she, Susan Pinar, to be thus imposed upon by a little minx of a child who would certainly use this permission as an entering wedge too? She sped downstairs and into the front garden. Hearing the door open, the child paused, halfway down the path, and looked back, smiling up at Susan. Are you sure you don't mind? She called in a sweet high tone. Susan laid down her sword, or rather, it was wrenched from her. What, what's his name? she inquired weakly. It's Benny, cried the child, only he doesn't know it yet. Benny? Susan shut the door and went slowly upstairs again. 
a flood of bitterness was contending with a new, odd feeling of warmth in her bosom. Benny. She went to the bed and looked down at the tiny morsel of humanity sleeping so peacefully upon it. A baby upon her bed! There hadn't been a baby in the house for years, not since that other Benny had laid upon the bed beside his mother. I was just thirteen, she whispered, when he was born. How I slaved for that boy. The baby smiled vaguely in his sleep, and one little fist opened and shut quickly several times. Susan gazed spellbound, and slowly the bitterness ebbed away, and the strange new emotion took possession. He loved me when he was like that, she whispered. He needed me then. The baby opened wide his blue eyes and gazed up at Susan. Then he shut them again and stretched luxuriously. Suddenly Susan bent and touched the little fist. The baby's hand closed about her finger, and he regarded her gravely. Then, slowly, she smiled a pale, wintry smile at the baby. The baby laughed gloriously back at Susan. Susan glanced about her. Then stealthily, shamefacedly, she stooped over and picked him up. Her arms had long been unaccustomed to such a burden, yet she did not seem awkward in handling Benny. The woman's instinct was not quite choked, even in Susan. She sat down and laid Benny on her lap. Benny sighed happily. He was not used to being held. Susan rocked and smiled at Benny, and Benny laughed and crowed back at Susan. Presently, she began to sing in a high, thin, faltering voice, uncertain with disuse. Out in the beautiful fields, there stands a pretty pear tree, pretty pear tree with leaves. The doorbell rang, and Susan started up, very red, and hastily replaced Benny on the bed, trying to remember just how the shawl had been adjusted over him. Then she went quietly down to the door. The child stood on the steps. I've come for Benny, she smiled up at Susan. We've got a bed up now, so he can lie there. I hope he hasn't been any trouble. At the baby's name, Susan's face hardened. He was all right, she said stiffly, leading the way to her room. The child gathered the baby up with a practised hand and bore him downstairs. Susan followed. What's your name? she demanded. I'm Polly, Polly Maxson, and I and Mother are very much obliged to you for keeping the baby. It was such a help to us. It wasn't any trouble, admitted Susan, and she called suddenly as Polly reached the path. If you want to leave him again some day, you can. There, she told herself sharply as she closed the front door. Now you've done it. I never knew you could be such a fool, Susan Pinar. You'll be overrun with those young ones next door. But to her surprise, the children did not bother her. They played all together in their own dreary backyard. When she went out to feed her hens, a row of faces sometimes peered over the fence, but that was as near as those young ones came to overrunning her. Then one day, just as she had admitted to herself that they were keeping out of her way, she saw Polly Maxson with the baby coming up the front path. I had a chance to get away, so I thought I'd come and see you, Polly said when Susan, after a short struggle, opened the door. She told herself she was not to be imposed upon, but again she could not withstand the eager friendliness of those brown eyes and found herself, somewhat to her own surprise, leading the way to her bedroom where the baby was safely ensconced on the bed. I bought my sewing, explained Polly, seating herself and spreading out her work before Susan's gaze. 
It's an apron I'm making for Mother. I'm making it all myself. There seems to be a lot of sewing in an apron, she added with a little sigh. Then she brightened. But Mother will be so pleased because I did it myself. Aren't you glad Christmas is near? It's such fun to make presents. I don't get or give Christmas presents, observed Susan coldly. Polly turned upon her, eyes filled with wondering sympathy. Oh, I'm sorry, she said, her sensitive mouth drooping at the corners. Why, we each get a present, sometimes two or three, and then it's such fun to surprise the children. I don't approve of Christmas presents. Susan was as uncompromising as Scrooge. Polly looked puzzled. Then her brow cleared. Perhaps you're like us, she said politely. Susan sniffed. Mother and father talk about it sometimes. What an expense it is to buy toys when we need useful things. Children need so many useful things, you know. Mostly always it's shoes. Mother will say, We can't afford it this year, Richard. Or, Don't buy sweets. It takes the money and it only makes them ill. But father always answers, It's Christmas, Louise. We'll have to stretch a point. Susan glanced at the eager little face and the sharp reply died on her lips. I've no one to give to, she said instead, mildly enough. What a pity, cried Polly. You must be terribly lonely without anybody but your chickens. It's too bad you haven't any relations. Relations are almost necessary at Christmas. I was in hopes, she went on shyly, it would turn out that the Benjamin Pinars at Barnesville were some relation to you. Susan started and looked sharply into the sober, earnest little face. Who? she demanded, finding no guile therein. Mr. Benjamin Pinar's family. They live quite near us in Barnesville. That's where we came from, and they were so nice. They weren't very well off. Mother said Mr. Pinar was the most unfortunate man she ever knew, for when he did get a job, he always broke his leg or cut himself or had a bad illness to spoil it all. But he was the kindest man. Then there was Mrs. Pinar, he called her Alice, and Joey and Susan and baby Benny, same name as our baby. Oh, he was so pretty, only thin. Polly's voice trailed off into silence. She was suddenly conscious that Susan's eyes were fixed upon her in the strangest way. It almost frightened her. There was a long pause, and then Susan spoke. Well, you aren't far wrong, she said in a hard voice. Benjamin was my brother's name. I expect that's him, with a wife named Alice. But he's nothing to me. I've never forgiven him for something he did once, and I never shall. I haven't seen him for fifteen years. Oh, gasped Polly, fixing wide, frightened eyes on Susan's. Susan reddened. I had good cause, she declared sullenly. But couldn't you, couldn't you stretch a point at Christmas? asked Polly with an effort. Susan shook her head. I shall never forget, nor forgive, she replied stubbornly. There was a silence, broken only by the persistent cooing of the baby. Polly put up her work. I must go, she said, picking up Benny, who crowed his delight at the change. <laughs> Susan touched his head awkwardly. Well, well, she said, moved by a sudden desire uncomprehensible to herself. You're a knowing baby, aren't you? He is very knowing, Polly agreed proudly. He's very old for his age, and he's so good. Then she made one more effort. To think that Miss Pinar, who really seemed to like Benny, should be deprived of her rights in a baby just because she couldn't forget. The easiest thing in the world. 
That, that other baby, you, she said with a gulp. He's lovely too, and very knowing. He's not so fat as our Benny. It's hard for the family to get enough to eat sometimes. Once mother found out they didn't have anything but bread and tea for days. But he's very good, and he could goo when we came away. Susan led the way downstairs in stubborn silence. At the door, she spoke suddenly. Come again and bring him, she said in a tone of grudging hospitality. Yes'm, answered Polly politely. Thank you. Susan went slowly upstairs and stood looking down at the little round hollow in her bed where the baby had been lying peacefully. Then she turned away with a jerk. I don't know that I need anyone interfering in my affairs, she said, tossing her head. But the fire in her eyes died quickly, and she sat down, gazing ruminatingly at the wall. No one has set foot in this house for years, she reflected aloud, except that minister that called last summer, wanted a subscription. I told him a few of my views on up-to-date religion, and I fancy he won't come back again. But now this young one's got to coming. I'll have to put a stop to it somehow. There was no snap to her tone as she said it, and her eyes glowed with a warm light. But Polly did not come. One day, as Susan was going shopping, she met her, wheeling the baby in a dilapidated go-cart. Susan stopped. "'Aren't you coming in to finish your mother's present?' she inquired without preamble and hurried on without waiting for a reply. "'Susan Pinnar, what are you doing?' she asked herself. "'Anybody'd think you wanted to be overrun by those shiftless folks next door.' But, in spite of herself, her starved heart warmed as she saw Polly and Benny coming up her path the next afternoon. After that, Polly came frequently, and once, when the baby began to fret, Susan picked him up and held him while Polly sewed happily. No more was said about that other baby who was not so fat as Benny, nor of his family. Whatever Susan thought, if she thought of them at all, she did not divulge even to Peter. The December days passed and Christmas week came. On the morning before Christmas, Susan was in the kitchen baking when she heard a knock at the door. For years, Christmas had differed little from other days to Susan, except that, curiously enough, the family custom of a Christmas feast had left its mark upon her, and she prepared a rather more elaborate meal than usual for herself and Peter, making mince pies and Christmas cakes by her mother's recipes. It was Polly who knocked, and Susan quite frankly smiled at her. "'I can't come in,' Polly declared. "'Mother sent me to ask you to come over this evening. We always have our tree on Christmas Eve.' and before Susan could reply, she was off. I shan't go, Susan told Peter, but when she had her pies in the oven, she fell to making Christmas cakes, and she used the whole recipe instead of halving it, as was her custom. I might send some into those young ones, she admitted, and iced them with unusual care. That afternoon she put on her black dress. Might as well wear it. It's getting worn out hanging but it's hard to say whether Susan would actually have gone into Maxim's that evening if Polly had not appeared just as she was washing up her tea things. "'I've come for you now, Miss Pinar,' cried Polly gaily. "'We're going to begin early, cos Tommy gets so sleepy.' Susan was unmistakably pleased. In fact, she did not even try to disguise that fact. She went into the pantry and returned with a plate of little iced cakes. "'Here, they are for you and the children,' she said, holding out the plate to Polly." "'Oh!' cried Polly with sparkling eyes. "'How beautiful they look! "'But you must give them yourself!' "'Susan shook her head empathetically. "'Well then, 
I'll take them to Mother, and she can surprise us with them, cried Polly. Won't it be grand? We can have them for real refreshments at the party tonight. All unused to going visiting, Susan was stiff and awkward enough at first, but presently she forgot herself, watching the joy of the Maxim children as they received their presents from the tree. A ball for Tommy, a pair of gloves for Katie, a hood for Polly, a rattle for the baby. There was a doll, too, for each little girl, over which they shrieked their delight. At length, Susan heard her name. Miss Pinnar, called Mrs Maxim, who was Master of Ceremonies. From Polly. Susan flushed, and her fingers trembled as she opened the package. Awkwardly, she turned to Polly. "'What made you do it, child?' she asked. "'I never thought of such a thing.' "'I thought you might like one,' said Polly shyly. "'I made it myself.' "'A dusting cap. It's just the thing. Thank you, dearie.' Susan put out her hand uncertainly, but suddenly Polly threw both arms around her neck and kissed her heartily. Susan held her close a minute.' Presently, Mrs. Maxim appeared with the real refreshments, and the shout of delight with which the Maxim children welcomed the little cakes brought a flush to Susan's cheeks. The evening was over at last, and Susan made her adieus to the family. Polly followed her out of doors. She slipped her hand into Susan's. I... I wish... The little Pinar children... Her courage failed her. She could not say it after all. Susan drew her breath sharply. I... It's too late now, she whispered. I haven't got a thing to take them. But they'll be so glad to have just you, cried Polly. There aren't many people to love them. Susan shook her head. You don't know me, child, she said bitterly. Running quick, you'll catch cold. And she hurried away. Reaching home, she took off her shawl and folded it carefully. It was a real paisley, one of her mother's prized possessions. Then she sat down on the lowest step of the staircase and buried her face in the paisley shawl. For a long time she sat so, wrestling with her angel. When she rose, there was a new light in her eyes. "'I'm not too late,' she declared. "'If I set out to do a thing, time, no, nor tide, won't keep me from it.' She laughed at her own wit as she hurried out to the fowl house, lantern in hand. She killed two chickens and, returning to the kitchen, fell to baking. Susan slept little that night. She was up betimes in the morning and by seven o'clock had a big basket packed with the chickens, pies, cakes, apples and celery. She put some money into her purse and put on her hat with trembling fingers. It was such an undertaking, this trip she was planning. She knew where Barnesville was, but she had no idea how the trains ran. In fact, she had not been in a train for years. No matter, she wasn't to be upset in her plans by trains. But there was Peter. What should she do with him? Polly! Polly would see to Peter. Even as she thought of it, there was a knock at the door, and there stood Polly, her arms full of toys and her eyes alight with purpose. "'Merry Christmas!' she cried. Then she added suddenly with a do-or-die expression on her little upturned face. "'If... if it's because you haven't anything to take, Miss Pinar, I got to thinking about it last night. How lovely it would be if the Pinar children had a real aunt. And just think if Susan could come 
and see you like I do. How she'd love it. And I collected some things you could take. A top Tommy got last year and a little tin wagon. I'm sorry it doesn't look newer. But perhaps Joey wouldn't notice that. And the rattle that used to be Jane's and my new doll. Susan gazed at her a moment in silence. Then she gathered her, top, doll and all, into her arms. Why, you dear little child, she whispered huskily. You're a lesson to me. And a little child... Her voice faltered and she turned away a moment. Then she drew Polly into the kitchen. There, she cried in staccato tones, pointing to the basket on the table. Open it. Polly obeyed, wondering. Why? It's full of things. Chickens and and mince pie and cake. Miss Pinner, you're not... Yes, I am, interrupted Susan. And it's all your fault. You've done the whole thing. You and the baby? I don't know, but my mother's old Paisley had a wee mite to do with it, she added. But it's mostly you. And I'll take those toys. They're just what I was wishing for. And I won't ever forget that you brought them, Polly Maxim. Polly was dancing about in glee. She fell upon Miss Pinar and hugged her. Susan kissed the eager little face. Will you take care of Peter? she asked prosaically. I wouldn't trust Peter to anyone but you. I'll be back tonight or tomorrow at the latest. And does your father know anything about the trains to Barnesville? The end. I hope you enjoyed this sweet and uplifting story of the beauty life can be when opening one's heart to the insight, innocence and wisdom of children. Please subscribe or follow this podcast and share it with your family and friends. I hope you enjoy a lovely week. I look forward to being with you next week when I again share stories from before.